This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. For Military Podcast. Let's start at the very beginning. Where is it that you came from originally? So, um, I originally came from like uh, from the Bay Area, California. Okay, uh, is where I yeah where I hail from and uh, from the East Bay there. And uh, yeah, I decided this uh, this military path about my senior year, junior year of high school uh, with. Uh, a friend of mine that enlisted and, uh, and I was trying to figure out my life and what I wanted to do. Um, I'll be honest. I tried the college route right out of high school. Yep. I went down to school in San Diego and I was playing soccer, having a great time, but uh, I got really caught up in the, uh, in the beach life and the college life and the soccer life. San and, Diego. Uh, Who wouldn't? Is you know, I moved down there at 17 and boy, did that, uh, it grabbed me by the horns and took a hold of me <laughs> and, I, I ended up spending more time in the sand than I did behind the books, and, uh, and I really got myself in trouble. So I needed to find a way out, and um, six months later, I joined the Air Force, and it saved my life, I'll be totally honest. Well, I imagine. Yeah, so wait, uh, why not? You're right down there, Navy country, you know, SEALs, the whole bit. So Air Force, why not go the Navy route? Um, so the Navy was, uh, was actually kind of an option at the first um, – uh, well, so an old like high school buddy of mine, one of my best friends from high school, he ended up joining the Navy, and uh, he was like, "Dude, you got to come with me. We can do this buddy program." And uh, by the way, I'm going to be on a submarine, and I was like, "No, nope, I can't do that." <laughs> no. You know, I'm uh, I'm pretty claustrophobic as it is. Like, you get me in a bathtub and I'm squirmish, right? Right. So, uh, so I was like, "I don't know, man. Let's um, let me think about it." And, and I talked to a friend of mine that was in the Air Force and uh, heard nothing but great things, at least from their experience. And, uh, and I was like, ah, well, you know what? I'm going to go the Air Force route. It sounds, uh, it sounds better for me personally at the time. So I did. And that's, that's how I ended up into the Air Force. So, so when you went down there, what was it that you requested when you went down to the MEPS, the Military Instance Processing Station? Did, the MOS that you have now or was it something else that you no. initially went into? So... Um, Kind of back in the day, I, I've always had this passion about being a police officer. So I went in with the mindset that I wanted to go into security forces and, uh, and do military police type work so that I could kind of prepare myself when I got out of the military for a job in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But I went through MEPS, uh, believe it or not, um, I was not suitable or I didn't pass the physical or whatever it was, the color vision test to go into security forces. And so I was like, okay, whatever, what are my options? And they gave me a list of options. And one of them was uh, military intelligence, uh, signals intelligence. 
And, uh, and I was like, well, that sounds cool. Let's go do some Intel work. So I actually went in as an Intel uh, uh, Morse code operator, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Old school. Yeah, it was my first AFSC. And, uh, but what's funny is how I learned about TACP was at basic training. And, uh, you know, their TACP recruiter came down and showed us all these great videos from the first Gulf War, you know, doing uh, laser guided bombs and blowing up tanks and all this stuff. And I was sold right then and there. I was like, this is what I want to do. And uh, went and took a a past test at uh, basic training and passed it. Everything was great. I went to go do my reenlistment paperwork at basic training. And I happened to be sick that day. My military training instructor was like, sorry, you're not going to go sign your paperwork. And I was like, really? So I missed the opportunity to cross train while I was in basic training. No big deal. It ended up working out for me. I did active duty, you know, on the Intel side for for a little bit. Had a great time. Met a lot of really good people, uh, guys and gals that I'll never forget that I'm still friends with to this day. And uh, but I've always had this passion about going back into TACP yeah. and going through my career. Uh, there was a lot that went on, but um, I always thought that if I never gave it a shot, that I would have always regretted it. You know, kind of a thing. And eventually, over a lot of I don't know how to describe it. Uh, I went through a lot between um, getting out of active duty and being in the reserves and uh, a lot of life things happening. And finally, the opportunity came back to itself, back to me. And like, I'm going to go try this TACP thing. So, you know, in 2015 is when I decided to go give it a shot and see what happens. And that's how I ended up becoming a TACP. So you went back down to the recruiter then again and had to go through the whole thing. Okay. So... I was wondering about that. I was wondering if you were going to look at, you know, trying to make uh, an MOS change while you were still on active duty or, you know, that's how you told me that you were going to make the transition or through reenlistment. But instead, you got out for a period of time and then decided to come back in. Yeah. So I got out in 2005 from active duty. Oh, wow. That much of a break. Well, so I went right into the reserves and they they made me cross-train. And again, probably due to like, my, uh, you know, uh, being naive or ignorant to the whole thing and the recruiters taking advantage of their numbers or whatever, they were like, hey, if you want to get out of active duty, these are the only career fields that you're, you know, eligible for. And, uh, and they weren't very, you know, um, they weren't very, like, exciting. Yeah. Uh, but I went into uh, vehicle operations in the Air Force, and uh, believe it or not, I got to deploy three times back to back to back doing uh, vehicle operations and convoys in, uh, in Iraq. So I uh, got a lot of great experience. I did that for eight years and uh, decided that I wanted to do something more. And that's when I, you know, with life opportunities and things, you know, one door shutting, another one opening is when I pushed after or went after uh, the TACP route in 2015. So I went from military intel to logistics into TACP. And uh, that's kind of... Long story short, but that's how I ended up here. Yeah, so what rank were you at this time frame then, when you go back in, 2015? So in 2015, I was a E6. I was a tech sergeant when oh, I cross-trained okay. into TACP. So yeah. were you the only NCO that was going through the training at that time frame? <laughs> no, there was uh, there was a handful of others. We started with about 50 to 60 guys, and there was a number of E5s. Uh, I think I was the only E6, but there was a number of other E5s there. And within, you know, the first couple of weeks, the washout rate was just significant. And uh, we went from 50 to, you know, down to 20 or 25 or whatever it was pretty quickly. 
and uh, and I was for sure the uh, the ranking guy and one of the oldest. There was uh, two other guys there that were older than me, believe it or not. But um, I was 32 when I went through, so it gives you an idea how old the other guys were. Yeah, but uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty funny. So yeah. all right, so you start off the training. And mm-hmm. take us through the pipeline, because I don't know that maybe a lot of the listeners really understand what it takes to go through to become uh, part of TACP and NAFSOC. Sure. So the, the I will start off by saying that the TACP pipeline has changed significantly over the last five or six years. Sure. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, positive changes for the pipeline. Uh, but when I went through... It was, um, you know, you start off with your first week of what they call prep week or um, like your in-doc phase, if you will. And it's just kind of an assessment, kind of like a, a, a feeler on what it's going to be for the next, you know, four or five, six months of uh, the pipeline. And the first five days are a smoker and they, they, they break you down pretty good. And uh, at that moment in time, I was like, wow, did I, did I make the right decision? Am I going the right way? You know, like this is a trip. But um, every morning I woke up, it was just like it was another craving for more, and I really enjoyed it. But um, it was, um, you know, 5.30, 5 o'clock in the morning until 6 or 7 o'clock at night, just nonstop of, you know, very vigorous, very intense uh, physical training sessions, uh, a lot of team stuff, uh, you know, and, and this was very heavy and like the, the PT was very heavy in the first portion of the schoolhouse where it was a lot of smoke sessions, a lot of pushups, a lot of burpees, you know, a lot of rucking. Um, and, uh, guys, some of the guys just, they struggled with that, but they didn't have the right mindset too. And it wasn't really about who can do the most number of pushups or who can do the most number of pull-ups. It wasn't about that. It was really about your mental, you know, fortitude and toughness about, I can do one more. I can do one more. I can keep going. Don't quit. And that's what they wanted to see. That's what they wanted to focus on. Uh, and I think that holds true today, uh, to today with the, uh, the mindset for the schoolhouse. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a test of, you know, your physical ability, your patience, your mental strength and toughness, you know, it was, uh, it was something different for sure. Well, that's that way pretty much in every school. And we'll get down some of the, the stuff that you've done and stuff outside of just going through your, your regular training. But I mean, most of the schools that you go to that are more advanced, whether it be Ranger School or if you're going to go to, you know, go MARSOC route or Force Recon or you're going to do SF and go to SFAS or, you know, whatever the case may be through a selection, it's all about never quitting. It's about Absolutely. it's about getting the right mindset and understanding that you know you're going to be going through hell every damn day. And I I think we recently talked about this in a, a podcast where one of the guests actually said um, he and a buddy made a decision that they would quit. Like that morning they'd say, "Well, we'll quit at lunchtime," and then at lunchtime they say, "We'll we'll quit at dinner." And uh, and and or I've heard people talk about it in ways of all right when I get to the next. Um, you know, when I'm on this long ruck. And so when I, when I get to the next telephone pole, you know, or the next tree or the next, um, you know, uh, different terrain, you know, setting or hill, whatever the, the case may be, I'm, I'll quit then. And and then they, yep. you know, that was the, the way that they could psychologically push themselves beyond the limit because you don't normally do that in the, the civilian side. You don't normally, even in the military side for that matter, see how far you can go mentally and physically. Cause it's, it's really hard to do without somebody 
being there beside you, maybe to push you to that level? Yeah, I would say that um, resiliency is a very underappreciated, undervalued uh, mental capacity. Uh, and that's something you learn very quickly about yourself and about your teammates uh, going through this whole process, right? It's like, all right, I've made it this far. Uh, can I do something else? You know, what else can I do? What's my potential? You know, am I going to hit a breaking point? Um, but every hurdle or every obstacle you come up to, you find a way to, to either get over it or around it or through it or whatever the case may be. And then there's this all of a sudden there's this this overwhelming uh, sense of like internal uh, fire. You're like, all right, I've made it, you know, through this event. Now I got to get through the next event, whatever that is. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to try it out. If it doesn't work, then maybe, uh, you know, I'll call it a quits or whatever. Um, but for me, being being the type of person that I am and how I grew up, you know, playing a lot of sports, being very competitive at nat- in nature, uh, having a lot of buddies that were probably better at me most of my life. But it was like, I got to keep up with these guys. I got to let them know that I'm capable, that I'm able. Um, and, and you're the same- oldest guy there, too. Yeah, 100%. That didn't help. Yeah, that, that didn't help. No. Uh, I mean, hurt any. Yeah. Every, every day I got by from the instructors and even the students like, sure. come on, old man, let's go, let's go. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm the old guy here. Let's, uh, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where the motivation kicked in for me was like, you know, I got to keep up with these young guys. And I am in a young man's career field, a hundred percent. And my young guys rely on me. They depend on me. They, they expect a certain performance out of me. And so, uh, so to me, it was like, not only like proving to myself, but proving to the guys that I could potentially work with and or lead, you know, in the future, like that I'm just as capable as they are. Yeah. So what happened after you went through this initial segment of uh, training and smoke sesh? Uh, You go through, you know, a lot of the academics, you go through a lot of the education on kind of like what the TACP career field is all about, you know, learning a lot of your, your radios, your antenna theory, your radio frequencies, uh, you're learning how to be an enabler and a full force multiplier, if you will. You know, the TACP career field, um, the first thing people think is like, oh, you drop bombs on stuff. You blow shit up. You kill people. Yeah. A-10s, man. I see, you know, that's, yeah. yeah. And that's it, right? And that, they immediately yeah. go to the A-10s and they think of these great airstrikes, which, yeah, sure, that is a portion of the job. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, our primary weapon system is not an M4. It's not an M9. It's our radio. And uh, if you can't use your radio, you're very ineffective and you're just another rifleman in a squad or a group or whatever. And, uh, you know, so you really got to learn a lot more than just being able to pull the trigger. You got to learn how to talk. You got to learn how to negotiate. You got to learn how to network. Uh, You're almost a car salesman, really, if you think about it, uh, because you're selling a lot of your capabilities to a lot of other agencies, a lot of other people that you're working with. And, uh, and I think people really underestimate that portion of being a TACP and that is probably, you know, the most significant or the most that we do is, is talking to people as opposed to like, don't get me wrong, shooting a gun and being a trigger puller is very important, but, um, there's something to have been said about, you know, deconflicting and mission planning and preparation and assessing, executing. There's a lot about that. Um, that I think people overlook for attack P. Yeah, you guys are attached to a lot of different types of units. And so I think it's so important, like you're saying, you've got to understand who you're supporting, you know, what the, the culture of that unit per se may be, or the activity, the mission set, the whole bit, because, you know, you may be the only Air Force guys on that team. 
Yeah. That is 100% the case. Yeah, yeah we, uh, I've picked up this philosophy. So I say this to a lot of my younger guys. Um, we don't typically deploy as a team. We usually deploy as a three, four man group that gets, you know, outsourced to teams. And we, uh, we work, you know, independently on these teams, but, um, we go anywhere at any time with anyone. And that is the baseline of how we operate as a, as a TACP. You know, they, they really push team philosophy, team-oriented uh, uh, working concepts, you know, which is great uh, because you have to be able to work on a team. You have to understand team philosophy. You have to understand, uh, you know, goal-oriented um, objectives. But, uh, you know, we have to be Semper Gumby all the time because you never know who you're going to be with, where you're going to be, and what you're going to be doing. You might have an idea, but you really don't ever know. Whereas a lot of these ODA teams, you know, these soft groups, uh, these NSW guys, they've been working together and training together for a long time, and then they go deploy together somewhere, and they all know each other. Mm -hmm. um, guys from my unit just recently, you know, they were overseas working with uh, some guys, some Tier 1 dudes that, that they literally only had maybe a month or two of training with before their deployment if they were lucky. And then they got thrown down, you know, downrange with these guys and just expected to perform. So there's a lot of pressure for, for a TACP, especially a young TACP that doesn't have the mental fortitude to make that happen. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about being integrated in with a different team or a different group of guys that you've never worked with before and making it happen. Yeah. So take us through the life, because uh, you, you kind of highlight a little bit about the complexity of this whole thing. So take us through a day in the life of. Um, I would say that that's uh, that's kind of an interesting question. There's, there's, I think, some misconception, that, and believe it or not, there's a lot of people that have no idea what a TACP is or what they do. They yep. may have heard of them. They may have, like, uh, seen somebody somewhere with a TACP patch or a JTAC patch, and they're like, I think I know what that guy does. But really, at the end of the day, they have no clue. Um, so a typical day, uh, you know, is, one, it, it, it's very um, – physically demanding it really is so you're you're constantly PTing. you're uh you're expected to to carry a lot of gear and equipment to perform your job so you have to maintain your physical fitness at all levels at all the time um but uh so you're PTing, you're studying up on a lot of our publications and a lot of our doctrine there's a lot of academics and a lot of reading because you're working with Every air asset, fixed wing, rotary wing, every piece of ordnance that's out there. And you have to know all of this at the drop of a hat when you go work with somebody. There's not going to be time to go back through the pages and read a book when you're calling in an airstrike and knowing the, the, you know, the risk estimated distance of a GBU-38. You're not going to have time to look that up. So um, not that I had everything memorized, but there's a lot dedicated to studying, a lot dedicated to um, you know, reading and academics. Uh, so not only are we physically fit individuals, but we're mentally fit in the sense that, uh, we have to be smart. We have to be intelligent. We have to make sound decisions and you have to think about risks, uh, all the time. So throughout the day, PT studying, um, you know, you're, you're kind and then the other side of it is you're, you're constantly bouncing ideas and scenarios off of guys at work all the time, guys that you work with and guys that you could potentially work with. And that's the best way to learn sometimes is through experiences. So we set up a lot of training with other agencies and other guys uh, to, one, get their perspective on things and then to uh, just kind of like 
shape everything that we do because uh, in the situations that we could be presented with, you know, are things that you can't necessarily train to. So you have to really like reach out, talk to people. Um, so that, so the days are, they're long as far as like my day to day stuff, but, uh, it's all for a good purpose in the end of the day. Um, cause you're all, you're, you're working to, to be capable. And I, and I, and I keep saying enabler because that's who we are and that's what we're all about. Uh, we are full force multipliers. And, um, so is, is a lot to it. Uh, it's the best damn thing I've ever done in my military career. I absolutely love what I do. There's nothing else like it. I wouldn't change it for the world, but, um, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of, a lot of great people, a lot of things that I would have never seen if I had never done this. You know, I've, I've met a lot of great people and I've done a lot of great, uh, training and experiences throughout this entire process. Things that I would have never been exposed to had I not gone this route. Um, so it's, um, it's kind of what you what you make of it at the same time. There's a lot of I hate to say this because I'm sure a lot of my TACP buddies would get pissed off at me, but there's a lot of lazy TACPs out there that that don't understand like being proactive, that understand being productive, being progressive, and leaning forward and getting stuff done. Um, but then there are really really good TACPs out there that are proactive, that are progressive. Um, so it's it's uh, it is what you make of it. Uh, to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, you're going to be by yourself working on a team and these guys are going to be relying on you. So it's really whatever you put into it that the other guys are going to get out of it. And that's what you got to start thinking about when you become a TACP. You mentioned TACP, but you also mentioned JTAC. So uh, mm-hmm. since you mentioned both of those, if somebody's listening to this and they've seen both those patches on the arm, what's the difference? So TACP is straight up my AFSC in the Air Force, my tactical air control party. And then the JTAC or Joint Terminal Attack Controller is our certification that we strive to become. Now, I'm probably going to piss off a lot of people <laughs> when I say this, but TACPs are the best JTACs out there. Um, why is that? Because it is our primary duty. It is our number one job. It's the only thing that we strive to become. Uh, there's a lot of uh, contention out there between a lot of different services and a lot of different tier one groups and a lot of different whatever out there that, oh, I'm a JTAC. It's your tertiary, your secondary duty, bud. Like, this is our primary job. And I'm not trying to be arrogant when I say that. I'm just speaking to the facts. Like, it's legitimately our number one job. And uh, so that's that's TACP. That's a JTAC. It is our primary focus. Yeah, that's a great uh, point because, you know, U.S. Army Special Forces end up uh, sending a lot of their people through JTAC training. And so, you know, you see that. You also seen it, you know, within the Air Force. And I think it's a very valid point. So when you see that, that doesn't mean that's their primary MOS, their primary skill, what they focus on all the time. When you see TACP, that is what you guys do all the time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's a critical factor because I think, you know, Getting back to your earlier point, um, because you're having to learn all these ammunitions, all these different aircraft, these different scenarios and situations, because on any given moment in a combat situation, you don't know what arsenal is at the disposal based on weather, based on conditions, based on where they're going to come from, um, you know, and sortie and everything. So when you call that in, you find out what's available there. That's when you've got to know all of the data and information to compile it, to be able to give the education to the people that you're supporting as to what the capabilities are. Yeah. yeah. 
and you know, as a tech P, I would guess that you probably have a lot more experience, knowledge, training, and everything to be able to understand that a lot faster than say somebody who just may be a JTAC. And I may be stepping on toes myself, but <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, dude, I, I've I've met I've met a lot of JTACs that aren't TACPs, and uh, they're they're great dudes. They they know the job, and you can have a conversation about being a JTAC. Uh, but um, but yeah, really, at the end of the day, I'll I'll give you kind of a real quick scenario. Um, I was recently downrange, and I'd met. Um, a, a CCT who was a JTAC and uh, we were doing some training together and I was the primary JTAC in this scenario and uh, he was acting as my aircraft for me again yeah. training scenario so, just so kind of stop and say what a CCT is because now people are hearing this acronym you know maybe for the first time go ahead <laughs> uh, CCT is your your Air, for, Air Force combat controller okay and how do they differ from TACP and from JTAC <laughs> Right. So CCTs, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speak to everything that they do because I don't want to I don't want to butcher what CCTs do. Um, I've only worked with a couple of them, uh, but uh, I know that they are uh, they're very very capable individuals. Uh, you know, they're they're about seizing airfields and doing uh, airfield uh, surveys and austere environments. They're air traffic controllers. Uh, they talk to a lot of aircraft, a lot of aircraft, and they are very good at what they do. Um, some of them have just been fortunate enough to go through a JTAC qualification course and earn their JTAC qual, uh, which by all means, um, is great. And, and again, it makes them a, an enabler or for, force multiplier, uh, at the same time. So I get that. I totally understand it. <clears throat> and, uh, so yeah, so this, uh, CCT was, uh, playing aircraft for me. Um, and I just went into what I do as a TACP, controlling aircraft. You go, you go through what's called your 12-step cast flow, and uh, you're, you're routing and safety for aircraft, and you're, and you're building your game plans, and your nine lines for close air support. And, uh, and the way I do it through all of my training experience and education uh, is a very interesting technique, but I front load a lot of my cast nine lines as quickly as possible. I may not have to strike the targets, but I'm going to give them the, the airplanes as much information as possible because maybe I want to strike it, maybe I don't, who knows. And uh, going towards the end of the uh, the scenario, we're doing a little after-action review together, and he was like, man, I've you were just throwing nine lines at me left and right. And I was like, yeah, and he was like, we didn't strike any of them. And I was like, I don't understand the problem. And he was like, I've never heard a JTAC do that before. And I'm like, what do you mean you've never heard a JTAC do that before? He was like... It was just blew my mind. You were just firing off nine lines, and then we just never struck any of them. I was like, yeah, but it's not a matter of if, but when, and maybe I needed to strike them later, but I'm going to front load as much information to the aircraft or the pilots as I can um, in the event that we need to strike something. And so it was just interesting. Again, there's a lot of technique in being a, a JTAC, um, but this goes back to, like, this is our primary job. This is how we operate. This is how we function. This is how we've been trained for so long. And uh, to me, it was very natural. And to him, it was very unnatural. So it was just an interesting dynamic. No, but it's a good point, again, because why is it that we have so many different, very overlapping situations like this within not just the Air Force, but we create it uh, because maybe the Army also wants to have, you know, JTAC qualified people that they they go through the training. So that means, well, we don't need, you know, TACP guys anymore. So 
Why do you think that kind of came about? Well, it's probably an ego thing or it's probably, uh, you know, I can't, I can't speak to that. I don't know why decision makers do that. I have no idea. You have this incredible resource at your disposal and we are often overlooked because we're not on team with somebody or we don't integrate and work with these guys all the time and they don't trust, you know, the, and this is just me speaking off, off the cusp here, but maybe they don't trust bringing in a new guy right away and they want to rely on the guys that they've already been working with. And this guy has really been doing well on team. We're going to go send him to SOTAC or we're going to send him to JTAC qual or whatever. And, you know, and so that's probably what it comes down to. Um, but I'm hoping that changes. I'm hoping over the last, you, know, you would think after 15 years of being in conflict, yeah. the TAC have proven their worth. And uh, it's an interesting situation. I can't speak to it. I wish I knew all the answers about it. But um, somehow, some way, TACPs have been overlooked for a long time. But uh, you know what? The teams that we have been working with and that we have worked on, we have absolutely proved our worth and our value for sure. Yeah. Well, and you get afforded a lot of different schools as well. So you end up um, going off the Airborne School? I actually have not been to Airborne. Okay. The TACP pipeline has changed over the years, and they have uh, adopted the um, basic Airborne School uh, static line jump course you know, at Fort, uh, Fort Benning, whereas when I went through – which really wasn't very long ago. It was not an option. And uh, being kind of an old hat, older guy in the squadron, um, they didn't seem, you know, really interested in sending me to airborne, which is fine. Uh, I will eventually, hopefully get to go. But, um, but yes, airborne is part of the, the pipeline now, you know, along with uh, your SEER school, your survival, evasion, resistance, escape school. And then um, there are a variety of other schools that we can go to, provided funding, provided a need, provided uh, it's essential for the mission. So let's talk about one of those um, that uh, you were one of uh, a recent graduate of, or not that long ago, I should say, and that was Ranger School. So you ended up yeah. applying, and, get, and a lot of people that listen to this show um, may not be familiar, or some people may not be familiar, that you can actually go through Ranger School from any branch of the service. You don't have to be Army. So you Correct. you came over from the Air Force. How was that? What What was your... <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> that look? What, what? Yeah. It, it was a it was an experience and a moment in life that I will never forget. Absolutely, but uh, I was presented with the opportunity on uh, applying and going to Ranger School, and you know, again, being the type of person that I am, I was like, well, if I made it through the TACP pipeline, you know, what else can I do? Let's let's give this a shot. Let's just jump into this head first and see what happens. Again, you know, give it a shot. If I don't make it, hey, at least I can say I tried it. Um, but I get uh, I get approved to go, and uh, I get my date for uh, my RTAC slot, which is your Ranger Training Assessment Course. It's a two-week uh, prerequisite, if you will, for Ranger School, and that's also held at Fort Benning. And uh, I get my date for that. I don't actually even have a Ranger School date. Um, oh. It was like – yeah, get through RTAC, and then we'll figure out if you have a Ranger School slot. I was like, what, All right, cool. What time of the year is that? What are we talking about? So I left January Ooh. 2019. I go to RTAC. And the the cold in Boise during January is a dry cold. The cold in Fort Benning in January is wet. a disgusting, wet, humid cold. And it cuts through you very quickly. And boy, did I learn that very quickly. But uh, so I get to Fort Benning, um, 
And, you know, there's a lot of uh, requirements for day one as far as your uniform prep, uh, all of your bags and all that. And so um, everything's stripped off your uniforms except for your name tapes. And the Air Force has Spice Brown, whereas the Army has black. And uh, there was 120 of us that started RTAC, and I'm the only one in Spice Brown name tapes. And right away, like, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And I wouldn't think that I would, but I did immediately. And uh, so, of course, everybody's like, what What the fuck is the Air Force doing here? What is this airman? Who is, like, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, no, here we go. And uh, it, it was like the pipeline for the TACP schoolhouse, getting shit for being the old guy. Now I'm at Ranger School getting shit for being in the Air Force. So I'm like, this is never ending. This is a dog-eat-dog world, man. Right. But again, it was like – And you're probably still right. the old guy. I, I was by far. Yeah. At this point, I'm 35 years old. And, uh, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year old kids, private first classes or, or corporal staff sergeants, whatever. Um, and I'm like, all right, well, here I go. I got to prove myself once again. Um, but I didn't, I didn't let the air force thing like get in the way, or at least I tried not to, but, uh, the first day, first couple of days, it was a lot of running around a few people noticed, but really didn't stand out until we took our um, Ranger uh, fitness uh, test. And everybody showed up in PT clothes, and everybody's wearing black and golds, and I'm wearing Air Force blueberries, and really stood out. And uh, and that's when the floodgates opened, and that's when everybody was giving me shit. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I just gotta, I just gotta deal with it and suck it up and move on. Kind of a motivating factor, like being the old man again, though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. But uh, in, in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is this is an army school. It can't be that hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally joking when I say that. Uh, I obviously had been through ranger school. I can tell you that it was the hardest, hardest two and a half months of my life. Um, well, the fact but, that you uh, survived I, that first go-around is quite impressive in his, of itself, you know. Two and a half yeah. months. Yeah, the um, the washout rate at RTAC was about sixty percent. So um, yeah, just about fifty of us graduated RTAC, and then uh, we graduated graduated on a Thursday, and the next Ranger School started in two and a half days on a Sunday. And they were like, "Hey, you don't have a seat, but um, you can go to the schoolhouse and see if they'll take a walk on." And I was like, "All right, well, I'm gonna I'm I'm here. I'm obviously gonna go." So I show up Sunday morning, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and uh, trying to recover from my RTAC experience, and, uh, and I get selected to, as a walk-on for ranger school just like that. And I was like, all right, well, here I am. Let's go. And uh, hit the ground running literally, didn't look back, didn't have time to look back. And, uh, you know, it was um, right right away I was like, oh, okay, well, this, this is going to be an interesting experience. But, but uh, my first thought, the first thing that I had was, you know, historically 75 or whatever the percentage is, wash out of this school or they recycle. Just don't be one of those statistics. Don't be one of those numbers. Like just make it through one event at a time. And luckily, you know, I had gone through the TACP pipeline and that whole schoolhouse process. And I learned about going from event to event to event and not focusing on what's happening next, but what's happening right now. And I think that was a huge um, difference for me versus a lot of the other guys that didn't make it. You know, they get they get their minds wrapped around 
what's going to happen next. You can't think about what happens next. You have to think about the present and what you're doing at that moment in time. Everything from tying your boots to putting your pants on, that's all an individual event. If you can get through one event at a time, you can get through everything. And so you, you literally have to break it down that much. And that's how I applied myself to ranger school. Um, and it inevitably ended up working out for me. So there it was. Like, yeah. Yeah. So how many T, uh, TAC P's have gone through ranger school? Uh, let's say even the in history of the Air Force. I mean, do you even know? Uh, or is it? So I, I don't know the number of TAC P's per se. Uh, what ranger school started, what, 1955, I believe? Mm-hmm. Um, the Air Force as a whole, since 1955, there's been approximately 325, maybe 330 airmen that have graduated the TAC, or uh, sorry, the uh, the Ranger Schoolhouse. Um, so, you know, what is that? Uh, Seventy something, seventy-five years. Uh, there's only been 330 Air Force members that have graduated Ranger School. Which, if you think about it, you know, there's a Ranger graduation course every two months or so, and they graduate about 120 or 200 people every class that's a lot of ranger graduates each year over the last 70 something years right so for the air force to say that they only have 330 i'm part of a very small percentage of people yeah yeah you definitely are and the fact that you didn't recycle you went through it uh, but i mean you also gave some really good life lessons right there because i think people even in a daily life um you know, we talked about resiliency and we talk about attitude and the, your mental approach to things and going over one hurdle. Sometimes, you know, people make the transition even out of the military and they have to adjust to the private sector and understand that maybe they have to take a job that they don't necessarily want. Maybe they've got to do something they don't necessarily want to do for the time being. Maybe they have to live in an area that they don't really want to go back to and live at the moment because that's where family's at that can give them the, the support or friends or something like that. But those are all just stepping stones and so if you live in the moment you you take those hurdles one at a time you have the opportunity then to gain you know more experience more knowledge that's going to help you the next time another situation comes up and also you know at times hopefully it gives you a little bit more clarity if you open your mind to it and the same thing i think is true in the military as you start changing pcs's and new units and you've got the same thing all over again it's really one of those things that you've got to grasp and understand as you grow um older you know, yeah, there's, um, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a, uh, there's an interesting theory about, uh, you know, you're being cultured, if you will. Um, and I think that a lot of people aren't cultured. <laughs> you know, I can't speak for everybody, but, uh, I definitely feel like there is a significant lack of, uh, just like cultural experience. And that could be, uh, across the board, like traveling the world and, and going to different countries, but also just, um, experiences and in, in jobs, uh, you know, living in different states for crying out loud. But, um, yeah, the more you see, the more you do, the more you like get yourself involved with the, like the well roundedness comes to be, you know, a really significant item. And I, I don't know, a lot of people that I've meet in the, in the corporate world or in the civilian sector, uh, they kind of lack that perspective. Mm-hmm this pandemic is a perfect example. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, I've been all over the world. I have hurry up and waited my entire life and I've been sitting in boxes or sleeping in holes or whatever. And, uh, and then all of a sudden these people are, 
you know, shut down in their homes for two or three months or four months, they got to wear a face mask and they're losing their damn minds. <laughs> right. And you know what? Like for as much as I like, I feel bad for them. It, like I have no sympathy because I have done this for 17 and a half years. I have been through and, and I can just me. There's a lot of people in the military that are like, this is just another day in the life. Like who cares? So we'll get through this. Yeah. You know, now coming back, you know, the other side of it with a Ranger tab, how was that received? Or, you know, did people really even notice, uh, especially since, you know, you've, well, I think it wasn't long after that, actually, you got deployed. Yeah, I, I deployed um, about six or seven months after I graduated. Uh, but coming back, it was, I got treated very differently. I'll be totally honest. Before I left, there was a lot of people that probably didn't believe in me, that didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, certainly didn't think I was going to make it through without recycling. Um, but uh, I came back. A lot of people congratulated me, of course. A lot of handshakes um, and uh, a lot of uh, praise, which that's not what I was doing it, but I got all that out of it. Really, at the end of the day, uh, I got more respect out of the Army counterparts that I support. You know, they're like, all right, cool. We got this this Air Force guy that works for us. He just graduated Ranger School. This is a big deal. So that in its own was worth, you know, losing the 30 pounds and being sleep deprived and malnourished for 65 days. <laughs> uh, it was pretty good. But then to come back and be like, hey, yo, Army, what's so hard about this school? Some Air Force guy just made it. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, funny story. And I have to, I have to share this story because, uh, I think it's funny, but in uh, in swamp phase or Florida phase, uh, you get to stay in some barracks for for a couple days, and inside the uh, the barracks are the bathroom stalls, and written on a bathroom stall is like this guy's, you know, I've been recycled, you know, bending phase four times, I recycled uh, mountain phase six times or whatever, finally graduating. And I almost wrote on there, Air Force JTAC 62 and through, what's so hard? Ah, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> it would have been pretty It would have been pretty obvious. You should have done that because that would have been motivating. Because, you know, of course, that being the last phase, you're already wore out. You, you, you can't even remember half the shit. You know, you're hungry nope. and everything nope. else. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it, like, and I'm like, you know, don't be an asshole. It's just. <laughs> Play it cool. You came here to do this one thing was to get through Ranger School. Just get through it. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I certainly wanted to be, you know, I just wanted to throw that in there, but I, I thought better of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot of listeners that are that get motivated by that. I mean, and I think it's really cool that you were afforded the opportunity to go through that training and really experience it because we try to tell people all the time that, you know, Ranger School is really more of a leadership school. Now, there are people out there that will disagree. But I mean, when you talk about, you know, it's one of the best schools available for you to go to. Why, why, you know, don't we have more NCOs and more officers going through that? Because what you get out of that is so much, you know, as a leader. I will 100% defend the theory that it is a premier leadership school uh, in the sense that uh, for the most part, anybody sitting behind a desk, sitting behind a computer, uh, they can make reasonable sound judgment and decisions because, you know, they are in their optimal conditions. They've gotten probably eight hours of sleep before they got to the office. Uh, they've probably had breakfast or a cup of coffee. For the most part, they're thinking clearly and reasonably. Ranger School teaches you 
how to make all of those same decisions with no sleep, with no food, uh, it was zero concept of anything in the most awful living conditions you can imagine, but still managed to, to lead people, to take care of your people, to meet the objectives, you know, complete the mission, and then to move on to the next. And I think there's a lot to be said about the, the Army Ranger School um, when it develops its leaders. Uh, it, it, it's truly a great course. I learned a lot out of you know, about myself personally, but uh, but really like what my potential is, what my capabilities are, knowing that under those environments or those those conditions, I can still lead people, I can still make decisions, and that's what it comes down to. What would you say to those individuals who look at TACP or JTACs and, you know, they're thinking about coming into the Air Force and going around that career path because of what they see with the cool guy photos and all that kind of good stuff? What kind of bit of advice would you give those individuals who are thinking about coming into the pipeline? Well, I would say that, um, for one, don't believe everything you see. Believe, you know, believe, believe nothing you hear and half you see, if you will. And I hate to say that because here you are listening to a podcast, right. but, um, and, and there's all these cool guy photos that are out there, all these tactical photos, all these guys wearing high speed gear and doing whatever. That's literally a sliver of what really happens. Most, if not, I, w- I would, I would say it's a very high percentage of what we do is in the planning and preparation phase of anything that we go through. The execution is a very small portion, and that's what most people see, unfortunately. Um, Attack P is a planner. We're a preparer. Um, We're constantly thinking about the third and fourth order effects of every decision that we make. Uh, And I, you know, so it's like, I'm not going to just go call this airstrike in and think about everything else that happens before you say cleared hot. Because there is a lot that goes on. There's a lot to take into consideration. Um, so, you know, it's just for one, be humble, be approachable. Um, you know, take take uh, take your training seriously and realize that um, it's not always sexy and it's not always the cool guy stuff. But that's where we make our money and that's where we prove ourselves and our value, our worth as a TACP is in that planning and preparation phase of of everything that we're involved in. So, what's next for you? That's a great question. <laughs> How many years uh, active do you have now? Uh, my TAFM's total active federal military service is about nine years, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, I've been in 17 and a half years total. So I'm, I'm a guardsman, um, which I think is interesting to note, too, is everything that I've accomplished as a guardsman. Um, I think people overlook that uh, National Guardsmen are you know a part of the service sometimes. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now that most of the TACPs that are forward deployed are National Guardsmen, and they're working with a lot of really good dudes out there. But uh, for me personally, you know, I just returned from my overseas, uh, my fourth deployment overseas. Uh, I'm going through the reintegration and acclimation phase right now. Um, I've got a pretty good setup with my National Guard unit uh, as far as uh, maintaining a position there. But um, I don't know. Uh, I think at this point, you know, I'm getting older. I'm slowing down a little bit. I'll be honest. Uh, my knees are cracking a little bit more than they should be. But um, I really want to help develop uh, the young guys in the career field, and I want to see them, you know, uh, accomplish a lot of what I have accomplished and a whole lot more. 
the uh, the tack feed career field has got a lot of potential and the guys in the career field have a lot of potential and i want them to see that and i want to see i want them to to progress so i, I really want to be a part of the shaping of uh, of how tack peas are utilized and how the the training is um is developed for these guys yeah that's awesome man uh, of course i wish you nothing but the best and you know all your your military career civilian career whatever direction you end up going here in the future for sure and you know i think you got to keep continuing on since you're still i mean you just graduated ranger school last year so <laughs> i mean i think you ought to reach for the next maybe it's scuba halo something like that you know to prove yeah that. oh i'm not done I'm okay not done. okay okay all right oh yeah i'm I'm going to ride this wave as much as long as I can. And, and I, and I have this addictive personality where it was like, cool, I made it through the tech P pipeline. I made it through ranger school. What is next? And I'm all about pushing the envelope and I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. So, uh, I really don't know what I want to do next. I just got to sit down and figure it out. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you on that brother. Hey, Robert it has been great. I appreciate it. <laughs>